The sermon passage for today is found in the Gospel according to Luke, and as you see in your bulletin and on the screen uh, behind me is chapter 9, beginning uh, with selected verses, beginning at verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. As they were going along the road, Jesus said to them, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, thanks, Ivan. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer City. Uh, we're in the, the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Hard to believe, but we began back in uh, Advent of 2014 uh, with Luke. It's a long book. Uh, we've been at it a long time. Uh, but we're on track to actually finish uh, at Easter of this year. And as Easter comes, uh, comes somewhat early this year, the end of March, uh, Lent begins uh, this next week. So uh, as the tradition goes, get all your sinning in by Wednesday because it's Ash Wednesday and you'll need to repent of all those sins on that Wednesday. So, gosh, probably sin a lot Wednesday morning before you even get to a service, so... Uh, there's a lot, to, a lot of work to do there. Um, but in all seriousness, as we come to Lent next week, uh, this week we're kind of ramping up to that. And then over the next six weeks, we will each Sunday be taking a look at different events that led up to the Passion Week of Jesus, uh, beginning this week with what really sets the stage for those events. And that is this, what you heard, the, the inevitability, the requirement, uh, the, the weird intentionality of Jesus. He, he's intentionally and willfully directing himself towards suffering. And how difficult that is to get our minds around 
Um, I hope, and, and it struck me as Ivan was reading, uh, and it didn't strike me this way in the first service, but where he says, let these words sink into your ears. My prayer is that they would sink into our ears and from our ears kind of down into our hearts. Uh, not just these words, but, but all of his words, but especially this sense of uh, what does it mean to follow one who was intent on suffering? And he says, if we're going to come after him, uh, we can expect the same. So I want to look at three items, or highlight really three items as we go through uh, the, these verses from chapter 9, and they're on your outline here, okay? And there are descriptions there, but I'm going to give you, uh, if, if it's more helpful to you to think in kind of one-word uh, descriptions, okay? I want to look first at confusion, uh, and secondly, I want to look at determination, and then thirdly, I want to look at imitation, okay? So the confusion in, how, in, in, in not just the disciples, but even in us, and how misunderstood the Messiah was, and I would argue continues to be in many ways, uh, this missional must that Jesus lived over his life, to be de- he was bound and determined to go to Jerusalem. And then thirdly, how do we set our face in imitation of him, okay? So those three things. I want to sympathize first with the disciples. You know, uh, if if you're like me, you read the gospel sometimes. What a bunch of idiots. I mean, you know, he said this to them. He said it again. He said it again. They still didn't get it. Well, I mean, if you and I were there, we'd have done the same thing, okay? Newsflash. You and I are just as dumb as them. Um, But I also do want to critique them because I think their hearts get exposed, as ours do, as we look at this, okay? You get a sense of this back and forth. So I just want to uh, kind of quickly survey chapter 9 from verse 20 down to the end uh, as we get into this, okay? So just follow along as we survey, and and I'm going to go... uh, go quickly through this. You've got this exaltation and humiliation. Every time the disciples want to dwell on the exaltation, dwell on the glory, Jesus brings it back down to the humiliation, to the reality of suffering. So Peter says, or Jesus rather, says to them, who do you say that I am? Peter says, the Christ of God, the greatest compliment in the history of the universe that one human being would ever utter to another human being. I don't know about you, but nobody, I've been given some great compliments in my life, but nobody's ever said, you're the Christ of God. Now, some pastors might want people to say that about them, um, but, uh, but boy, that'd be pretty scary. <laughs> but this is the greatest compliment in the history of the universe. And yet Jesus follows it with, look at verse uh, 21, he strictly charged them and commanded them to not tell this to anyone, and he immediately follows that with, Oh, by the way, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, be killed, and on the third day be raised. He didn't correct Peter, at least not directly, right? Because the disciples didn't have a category for a Messiah that would die or be humiliated. God doesn't, God humiliates his enemies. He doesn't humiliate his chosen ones. He doesn't humiliate his children. Um, But it's, it's met with, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and die. So exaltation, humiliation. They go on. Um, and you have this, the transfiguration, a very famous account, where this weird kind of halo effect takes place 
I'm not really sure what in the world was going on on the mountain. Um, the gospel writers try to describe it, but it's, this, it's some sense in which he, he, he's revealed for who he really is. And Peter and the disciples go, let's build some booths for you. Gosh, this is amazing. And then it all goes away and they go back down the mountain. But as they go back down the mountain, they're met with this boy that has been suffering from seizures. His dad said, please heal my son. Jesus heals him. And look at verse 43. Everybody's astonished at the majesty of God. And while everybody is marveling and astonished, again, exultation, everybody's wanting to go up. What does Jesus do? Verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So back down, right? <clears throat> and then they start arguing about who's the greatest. But Jesus uh, takes a child and again, humbles them. They're talking about who's great. He takes the most insignificant, most vulnerable, most, in, in his day, worthless part of society. They're to be seen and not heard, all that stuff. And says, whoever wants to be great in the kingdom must be like this child. So again, he brings them back down. And then there's this moment in chapter 9, verse 51, the fourth paragraph down there. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's time. Uh, and, and as they get on the way to Jerusalem, immediately, verse 57 down through 62, I just included a couple of verses there for you, but following Jesus means living like Jesus. He says, nobody who's coming after me, who puts his hand to the plow to come after me, is fit for the kingdom of God if he's going to look back. Jesus didn't look back to kind of the, the, the itinerant ministry in Galilee where everything was kind of hunky-dory and, you know, he was from there backwater place. Nobody was really opposed to him. Everything was going swimmingly, right? He could have stayed there and done some great work over the next 30, 40, 50 years and died an old man revered in Galilee. But he chose Jerusalem because he had to choose Jerusalem because it was the only way, right? Now, what's revealed about the, the disciples here? There's something wrong with them and I would argue us and we kind of see it, we get a, a sense of it in verse 47. Okay, so look at verse 47. This argument arises, but Jesus, Luke says, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. There's something about the reasoning of our hearts that makes us, uh, or keeps us rather, from hearing and understanding, making sense of what he's saying. And part of it, I would argue, is an allergic reaction to this talk of suffering and dying. I mean, raise your hand if you're excited about signing up for a job description that, you know, number one, must be committed to suffering and dying. I mean, people that sign up for that we think are a little strange, right? Uh, why would someone purposefully move toward that? But the reasoning of their hearts is a confusion about Jesus' kingdom. It's a confusion about what greatness that's why he takes the child and tries to correct them. It's a, it's a confusion, a misunderstanding about what it means, what glory means. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But what he said by the word heart is very important. What does the Bible mean by the word heart? You're going to understand not just Jesus' kind of critique of their reasoning, but even your own heart. You've got to understand what the Bible means by the word. And according to the Bible, the heart can reason, as we see here, but it can also dream it can also think. It can also be stolen. It can melt. 
And here it is. It, it, it's the heart is the source and the storehouse. There are a lot of different definitions. This is just one I came up with. I hope it's helpful. It's the source and the storehouse of your deepest trusts and your deepest treasures. Okay? That's your heart. According to the Bible, it's the source and the storehouse of your deepest trusts and your deepest treasures. So what is most real to you affects how your heart reasons. So how do our hearts reason on the subject of suffering? Run away, you know, flee, um, get away from it. How do our hearts reason when it comes to weakness? Well, hide it, fight it, uh, or in my case, lift more weights. Can't tell through my shirt, but it's happening, it's happening. Less weakness, more strength. <clears throat> um, how do our hearts reason when it comes to pain? Uh, avoid it, numb it. There's all kinds of different ways. But it's the, the, what, what is most real to you at that point affects how your heart reasons as you face it, whatever it is, right? If you look back at our call to worship from Matthew 1, I realize it may seem strange because Christmas is over, but I, I included it because the angel says something significant to Joseph. He says, you, you're going to name this child Jesus. Why? What's his mission? Because he will save his people from what? Their sins, right? Because that's their biggest problem, right? Our, our biggest problem is not our circumstances, not our boring job, not our less than desirable neighborhood, not our pain in the neck in-laws, not even the weather, right? He came to save me from my sin because that's my biggest problem. Of course, what's more real to us and has greater control over the reasoning of our hearts as a result is, is usually our circumstances. It's what's been done to us, right? Um, you, you heard a little bit of this, or I heard a little bit of this last night in watching that debate, you know. And, and this, this is not, I'm not picking on any one of the men who are on that stage, but it's often when you answer, how do, how do you solve a problem? What's the answer? Well, if those people, right, if they, and a lot of times they're talking about a particular female and a particular party, none of, none of them are even in the room, right? So you're, you're often blaming, you're often talking about, you're often, you're often laying the problem somewhere else rather than your, your sin, your internal brokenness. And that's a problem because that's the way our hearts reason. They've got to be repaired. The disciples didn't, uh, didn't understand this either. They figured their biggest problem was the Roman Empire, the unfair tax system, anything other than their sin. The disciples understood the Christ of God to be this political hero. They understood him to be a conquering warrior, a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Anything but a suffering, crucified weakling. See, if the disciples were writing a resume for the Christ of God, Isaiah 53 would not have been on it. They, they sort of forgot about that or glanced over that or I'm not even sure. And even on this side of history, having the rest of the story, we often want our Christ, our Savior, to be a problem solver, a life coach, a material blessing machine, a cosmic genie, a buddy, right? Anything but a Savior, which you realize the word Savior implies you need to be saved from something. So that's why his name is Jesus. Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. 
Um, we, want, we want anything but a Savior. We want anything, anything but somebody who demands that I submit and come after him, which implies he's the boss, which implies he knows better than I do how to live my life, right? Our hearts reason like the disciples that following Jesus Christ means greatness. It means glory. But in John 12... The same point in, in John chapter 12 is, this, is, is John's equivalent to Luke chapter 9. It's where the switch gets flipped. Because these Greeks come to see Jesus at the festival, and it's like something happens, and, and he says what? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? If you and I, the hour has come for me to be glorified, what are you thinking? Victory, right? You're thinking a victory parade through the streets. You're thinking a coronation ceremony in the palace. But when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he doesn't mean that. That's how the disciples wanted to be delivered. But Jesus says, the thing you most need to be delivered from, that is your sin, requires my death. Uh, The only thing that will truly heal your deepest problem, sin and pride and fear, just to name a few, is the Christ becoming humbled unto death and that, that's where his glory is shown. That's where his greatness is shown. Because to be truly great, Jesus says, you have to become truly what? Low. The greatest among you will be like your slave, he says. That's the kingdom of God's reversal. And it requires a revolution in your reasoning. Uh, and, And only the gospel can give you that. And more on that in just a minute. Now, having thought about that, let's contrast the confusion, right, the allergic reaction to what in the world is he talking about? I mean, look at verse 45. Not only did they not understand, and it was concealed from them, they were afraid to even ask him. What, what, do you want to ask him? No, do you want to ask him? No, I have no idea. What's he talking about? The, the, the son of man, the Messiah is going to suffer? No way, Right? But something in Jesus is this dogged determination. And there, he says, it's time. Have you ever had a watershed moment in your life where you knew the decision you're about to make, you, nothing was going to be the same after that decision, right? Um, there's no going back. Well, what did that feel like? Might have been scary. Might have been, might have been energizing. Might have been paralyzing. Um, for some of us, it may have been the day we got married. Hopefully that was energizing and not paralyzing, right? Um, maybe at the birth of a child. Um, my most recent one was, was uh, running a, a, a marathon, uh, which some of you are thinking just plain stupid, right? Um, and yes, there was a point at which I thought, this is stupid, uh, and it was a point of, uh, it was about mile 19, mile 20, and I, I, I saw my wife, and she said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm done. I'm done. Now, for those of you that don't know, a, a marathon is 26.2 miles, so I wasn't done yet, right? And uh, we're running around these neighborhoods, and there's people, and, you know, cheering, and I'm just kind of, I'm done. I have nothing left in the tank. She hands me an orange, and you know, start eating, get a little bit of sugar, start to feel a little bit better. And there was a point at which this guy runs past me. He says, man, you got to get your head right. You got to get your head right. (laughs) Easy for you to say as you run past me. Dodo, right? 
or the eight-year-old little girl who's running with her dad. <laughs> Everything hurts. Everything hurts. Right. But there was a point at which got a little bit of sugar, started feeling better, and I said, I, I'm going to finish this. By golly, I'm going to finish this. I must finish this. Right? And for Jesus, I'm not equating me to him, but it's, it, it's a little bit like that. There's this point at which you say, I can't go back. I've gone 19 miles. There's 7.2 left. Don't forget about the point two. There's 7.2 left. Even if I walk 7.2 all the way in, I'm going in. I'm going to finish this thing. Right? And for Jesus, it was this moment. The road to Jerusalem awaited Look at uh, 9.51 again, uh, chapter 9, verse 51. It's in the fourth paragraph if you're using the um, insert in your worship folder. Luke says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. That's, that's an idiom of intention and determination and desire. You get, you get glimpses of it throughout the rest of the gospel, okay? Let me just uh, refer to a couple and uh, give you an idea. So a few chapters later in Luke uh, 13, uh, Jesus says, or Luke says, at that hour some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now listen, here it is. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I must go on, he says. I must go on, right? Uh, Or a little bit further in chapter 17, verse 25, but first the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus lived with this sense of must over his life. To what in your life do you say, I must? I must. Um, you know where we get, the, we get phrases like dead set? He's dead set. He's hell bent. Come hell or high water, I'm going to. You know, you've used these phrases before. What are the kinds of events that trigger you using those phrases? Usually something that, that, that there's no going back. Or it has to happen, Right? I was going to finish that race, for example, right? Uh, I got to thinking this week uh, along these lines about determination and resolve to accomplish a mission, and I thought of the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, You know, if you think about the time and the energy and the planning that went into that, why did they do that? Because they had taken their mission and submitted it, put it underneath the greater mission of Allah, right? And they got up that that morning, they took showers, they got dressed, they drove to the airport, and they boarded the planes. What were they doing? They were setting their faces. They were going to do what they needed to do, what they had to do. They told their families, I must do this. Now, what, what drives people to that kind of behavior? Being on a mission. And chances are, if you or I went through our list of responsibilities and activities, whatever you said, I must, too, it'd be tied to your mission. Now, what was driving Jesus' mission? What was driving this must? Well, I think there's two things. Uh, I think, first, it was a love of his Father, a submission to his Father's will. He said in John chapter 4, 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What, what fed his soul was doing what his father told him to do. What was the most real to Jesus' heart was his father's love for him, and it freed him to do whatever his dad told him to do. My dad says you've got to go to Jerusalem, and you've got to suffer, and you've got to die for the sins of your people. That's why your name is Jesus. Okay, dad. That was, that was what was most real to his heart. Therefore, his musts were tied to his mission. Now, what's the difference between Jesus and the suicide bombers? Well, Jesus was driven by a mission to save us, not himself, right? Part of what drove those men to um, take over those planes was the sense of, I've got to earn my acceptance with Allah. It was a self-serving act. They were trying to prove their obedience, prove that the, the level of their commitment by the, by the size of their sacrifice. It was a selfish act, ultimately, because their aim was to take life, right? Jesus' aim was to give life. But he only gives life, you realize this, he's the life giver, but he's the life giver because he gives up his life. Every act of love imitates that one great act of love, my life for yours. So for any act to be considered love, as Christianity would define it, it has to be an exchange of I die, you live. I lose, you win. I suffer, you gain comfort, right? It's this exchange. I take something from you, you get something from me. And the only way, according to heaven, from all eternity, that Jesus could save his people from their sin was to become sin for them. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, come hell or high water, and hell came. And high water came because he had to drink the cup of the Father's wrath for sin, and he had to drink it and be drowned in it. Because the only way to lose none of the ones the Father had given him was to be lost himself, right? But there's something else. It's not just love of his Father. It's this joy set before him. And dang it, if David didn't steal my thunder, I'm going to get him back for that later. Um, but in the assurance of pardon, the writer says, what allowed Jesus to endure the shame and the agony and the terror of the cross? It was the joy set before him. There was something he didn't have that he longed for. There was a prize. There was an inheritance. Now listen, there was something so valuable that Jesus Christ would endure hell itself to have it. What was it? You. You are the joy that was set before him. The Bible says his inheritance is a people that he purchased with his blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's why we evangelize the world, right? But isn't that amazing? As he set his face for Jerusalem, in, in chapter 9, verse 51 of the Gospel of Luke, his mind was full of you. So just think about that. I mean, ponder that. Let, let those words sink into your ears. That his mind was full of you, and that was part of the motivation, the resolve, 
the dogged determination that come hell or high water, he was going to Jerusalem. Now, where does that leave us? Where in the world do you get the, the, where in the, world you get the ability to willingly move toward uh, suffering and pain and disadvantage? Well, here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world. Jesus isn't calling us to something he has no experience with, right? Allah, the God of Islam, has no experience with suffering or martyrdom, but he demands it from his followers. Do you realize that? Allah's never suffered. He's been in the eternal bliss of heaven from all eternity, or whatever that is. But he's never suffered. He's never been martyred. But he demands it from the people that follow him. Not so with Jesus. Jesus Christ says, go toward Jerusalem, I'll go with you. And the promise is we can set our faces toward our own Jerusalem because Jesus has already gone ahead of us. The cross that you and I bear following him, it's not his cross, right? We sang about it earlier. I know that what? It is finished. On that cross, he said, it is finished. You're not, you're not bearing that cross. You're bearing your cross, right, in the likeness of his cross. It will be a cross-shaped life. And he calls you to follow him into that. Following the one who was resolute and dead set to go to Jerusalem means we must follow him to our own Jerusalem to take up our cross, even unto death, to love and to love and to love and to love to empty ourselves, to disadvantage ourselves, to inconvenience ourselves, to our own hurt. Why? Because that's where you find him. That's where he says he'll be. With you. Right? That's greatness in the kingdom of Jesus. Listen to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was martyred for his faith in Nazi Germany. He says, bearing the cross does not bring misery and despair. Rather, it provides refreshment and peace for our souls. It is our greatest joy. Here we are no longer laden with self-made laws and burdens, but with the yoke of him who knows us and who himself goes with us under the same yoke. Under his yoke, we are assured, listen, we are assured of nearness and communion. It is he himself who disciples find when they take up their cross. So what's that mean? Um, what, what, is it, what does it look like? And I, I want to give you a story as I finish here of uh, just this week of a friend of mine um, heard this story. Uh, it's a, he, he um, kind of come to Christianity uh, somewhat, somewhat newly, right? He's, he's learning. Um, probably wouldn't say he's been a Christian for, for too terribly long, but the, the, in the person of Jesus study, uh, he, he said, you know, it's been transformative for me because it's helped me to really see other people in the same way that God sees me. Well, <clears throat> so a, a situation came up. He's in sales, and he's been in sales for 25, 30 years. So as a result, he, he's, he's pretty good at it. There's a lot of repeat customers, that repeat clients that come back to him again and again uh, for his product. And so he had a repeat client come back. And uh, she, she buys the product from him, and she goes home, and a few days later, she, she, she calls him up, and, and she says, something's not right here. You, you, uh, you, the, the way this is working, I, I, I'm not, you lied to me. You lied? I lied? No, no, I, 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 no. You lied to me. In fact, 
I think you did it intentionally. In fact, I've already told all my family and friends, I've called the Better Business Bureau, I'm going to write a letter to the editor of the newspaper, and uh, I'm going to write a letter to your company saying, don't ever do business with these guys again. They're scum, they're liars, they cheat you, they're money-hungry, greedy goats. Don't, 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 ever do, don't, don't ever do business with them. So uh, this happens. She leaves him a really nasty voicemail. He goes in, he's talking to his boss and uh, kind of, you know, lamenting the whole situation. And uh, his boss says, well, you, you know, uh, that, none of that's true about you. Th- those are all lies. He said, oh, I know. I mean, Jesus is fond of me. I, I'm not worried about what, what she says. I know it's not true. I mean, his boss is kind of, wow, you know, it's amazing. He, he says, so... Uh, you know, can we, can we do something for her? And his boss goes, what, what, are, you ta- what are you talking about? I, I really would like to help her. I mean, I know, I know she kind of, you know, drug our name through the mud and she called us these names and everything else, but, but I really like to help her. See, her, her husband is, uh, is disabled and she's got some family problems and I know she's had a, she's, she's had a rough go of it. I, I would like to, I'd like to still find a way to be a blessing to her. And so he calls her and says, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you a different product and, uh, and, and, and our company will lose money, reputation, time, all kinds of things so that you can have what you want. Now, where in the world does a person find the energy to do that? Where in the world does a person find the ability to say that when what's said to them is, you are a disgusting pig, liar, cheater, uh, money-grubbing scumbag? Because that's basically what she called him. And the company. The only explanation is that he would be so enamored with the way that Jesus has seen him and that when he drug Jesus' name through the mud, Jesus would still go resolutely toward Jerusalem for him that he in turn might have the energy and the capability and the love for this woman who clearly was just spewing hate toward him to want to bless and love her in return. The only, the only explanation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's transformed him and it is transforming him. And it's working its way out into the way that he does life. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I heard that story this week. And I told, uh, I told his uh, boss, it, I mean, it's like somebody unscrewed the top of, of my lid. And, just, and God just took a bucket of encouragement, poured it right down into my, into my soul. Because the gospel's working. The gospel's working and it's changing people. And it's changing the way those people do life. And it's changing the way those people work. And it's changing those companies where they work. And ultimately, it's going to change our community. And it just reminded me, uh, don't grow weary because I'm working. So I wanted to encourage you with that. And I also wanted to say, that's what it looks like to imitate. That's what it looks like to set your face, to pursue suffering while, while full of joy. Not, not all the time. I mean, those, they, they got frustrated. But, but as a general rule, their life was full of joy. And the only reason they could do it was because of the joy uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. Yeah, amen. Um, So let me pray, 
and ask that God would fill us with that kind of energy and, uh, and uh, um, power to witness to that work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we, as we come to the table, would you uh, enamor us? Uh, would you overwhelm our hearts with uh, the beauty of your work for us? Uh, and would it in turn produce in us a willingness to uh, pursue suffering, to pursue disadvantage, uh, to pursue inconvenience? Ultimately, I mean, really what it is, uh, Father, is that you would enable us to pursue love, to love as we have been loved, and that it would infiltrate our hearts and then flow out into our lives, and may the evidence of it be lives of beautiful works, as we say around here so often, lives of beautiful works that honor and glorify you. That's our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if your faith is in Christ, let me just repeat the words we just sang a minute ago. Think what spirit dwells within you. Uh, think what father's smiles are yours. Think that Jesus died to win you. Uh, if you think about those things, and you receive this benediction, you're unstoppable. I mean, you really are. We really are. So think about those things. Receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.